We have been for the last four weeks, I think, in a series called Lyrics. And our goal with lyrics is to start communicating some of the idea that music in in general can have a very powerful impact on our lives. And I know that's something we can all agree on because you can think of those songs that have been very important to you, that have had deep meaning during either hard times in your life or songs that relate to these really fun memories that you have as you've been uh, from either as a kid or going through school. And so one of the things we've enjoyed doing that's been a lot of fun is we've brought up some of our leadership and we've had them share some of the songs that have meant something to them throughout their life. It's my turn this week. So we're going to have a little fun with it and I'm almost guaranteeing you you're going to be a little surprised with a couple of the songs that are on there. I could not pick my favorite four or five songs in, in, in totality. So what I decided to do was pick a few songs that meant, that, that meant a lot to me in my journey as a musician. So to be able to get to where I am today, there had to be something along the way that helped develop this passion and and love for music inside of me. So I wanted to share a few of those memories and moments through my my life. So, uh, Michael, let's run with the first one. Told you'd be surprised. I'm going to try not to sing it. It's hard to do this. Huh? Oh, yeah, it is. A little blue suede. That's good, Michael. Thanks. So that song for me is one of my very favorite memories probably of all time. My parents love music and were unfortunately not very musically gifted. But they love music. Sorry, Mom and Dad. They'll watch this later. I got the gift thing. It's just, it happens. Um, but what they did is they loved music, and it was always playing in our house. Year-round, we have music going all the time, but that particular song brings back a memory of my dad and I riding in the truck, jamming out to some blue suede. And there may or may not have been hand motions, and that's for me and my dad, so you guys get to miss out on that. But that was one of those special moments for me uh, of just relating to a song and connecting it to a memory and giving me some kind of happiness when I hear music, and when I hear that song, I just have this memory of going back, riding through the roads with my dad in the truck, listening to Hookah Shaka, Hooked on a Feeling. So let's, let's run the next one. Let's fast forward a little bit in the timeline. If I just believe it, there's nothing to it. I believe I can fly. I believe That's good. I can fly. I'll embarrass myself further. So I'm going to cheat with that one a little bit. Uh, that soundtrack for me is, is twofold. One, it's my f- one, on one of my favorite all-time TV or movies as a kid. Space Jam. Okay. <laughs> it's all about some Space Jam. I, I burned that VCR out watching some Space Jam. But that other song, uh, they, we would play the, the Space Jam soundtrack and some other songs in my elementary school choir. And that was one of the first times I was encouraged by a teacher to actually sing because I wanted to stay after choir and finish the song. She'd play stuff like that as we lined up to leave class, and I'm the one in the back of the line like, I got to finish the song, I got to finish the song, I'm singing loud, and the best part is that I was terrible. (laughs) Uh, I could not sing as a kid, and it was loud, and it was obnoxious, but I loved it. And I went from singing in the car with my dad to singing in a group of people and them looking at me strangely but me loving it and enjoying it. So, yeah, a little Space Jam action throwback. Let's go to the next one, Michael. Mm. Anybody ever dance to this? Any couples in here? 
surely. Like one person probably had this as a song at some point. I saw it. Little hand? Okay. Alright, I see you. That's good. That was the first song I learned to play for a girl. Because why else do you learn to play an instrument other than to impress a girl? So that, that fast forwards us a little bit to around junior high, and I just, my, my uh, passion for music and maybe some of my hormones connected, and we're like, hey, I should use this. <laughs> I should use this to connect two of my favorite things together. And so uh, I'll be was a hit. So let's go to the next one. That's right. A little later in high school experimenting with some different kinds of music, uh, wanted to be a rock star, of course, and this particular song was one of the first ones I tried to learn on lead guitar, and was also my discovery that I cannot play lead guitar. <laughs> so you have part to, partly to thank me being here for me not being able to play this uh, and be in a rock band somewhere, so that's good. Let's do uh, the last one. Maybe my favorite. Silence. Gotcha. No, there's one more for real, I think. We'll wait. There we go. Little Matchbox 20, anybody? Trying so hard not to sing right now. It's very against my. Alright, that's good. That was the first song that I was able to step up at somebody. That's good. We need to talk later. We need some more people up here, all right? Anybody that's a Matchbox 20 fan, you're like automatically hired. We'll just make it happen. Uh, that was the first time that I got up and played in front of actual group of people trying to play guitar and sing at the same time. I was in a, like a high school, late high school, early college Matchbox 20 cover band, essentially. And uh, we had a lot of fun, and we're not super great, but we had a lot of fun, and Matchbox 20 is a great song. And so uh, that kind of walks through that journey of music relating to me in these really important moments. And even though the, the, there are so many other stories on the spiritual side that connected me to where I am today with what I get to do every week of leading worship here, those moments were a big part of just connecting to my heart with music. Um, and I feel like I would be remiss to be the worship leader at, at the church and not use the microphone time to talk about worship for a little bit. What I think is so specifically special about music across the board is that I, I believe with all my heart God designed us and God designed music and he designed those things to fit together to connect with us in a special way that nothing else does. And in the same way, you may have all kinds of different backgrounds. Some of you, I know, this may be the first church you've been to in years or ever. And this is your first time really experiencing what happens up here. And it is very different than Matchbox 20. And it is, at least most days. But what we're able to do is in the same way that you connect with memories in life and friends and family through all these songs you've grown up with, what we desire to do with the songs up here is to connect you to the bigger picture. We sing about relationships and songs like that. Um, you know, maybe not so much Thunderstruck, but you think of Al B, and it's this love story, and it's a song, and it connects you to that one memory and that person. But what we do here is desire to connect you to Jesus with the same truths and the songs that, that allow you to sing out what it is that we believe and what it is that we feel and the struggles that we go through and, and the praise that we're able to bring when things are good. 
music can be one of the most intimate ways that we connect with God. And I wanted to pick that word intimate for sure because that may make some of us uncomfortable, but that's just a deep relationship. It goes beyond the, the, the generalities of conversation and, and it insinuates this close connection, this deep, deep connection. Not all of us feel comfortable singing in front of people, fair? But I bet all of us have at least someone we would sing in front of. That best friend, maybe it's the kids, maybe it's your, your significant other, whatever. There's that one person that's heard you sing, whether they liked it or not. They've heard you belt it out. They've heard you do that. And, and that in itself denotes some kind of level of intimacy between you and that person because you're, you're at a level with them that you're able to relate that you're not willing necessarily to relate to other people. And that's the special part about worship and about music. It's the same way. You're not putting on a performance for the people around you. You don't have to worry about that. But when you're able to worship and you're able to sing these songs, and it's this level of intimacy with God that brings this deep connection to it. Where you're saying, God, I may not be comfortable with this in other places, but I'm comfortable doing this with you because of how much you mean to me and how much these words mean to me. And so that's why we get up and do this every week and we make it as loud as we can so that even if you're not comfortable with singing, you can still just not worry about it. But it is an amazing thing that God has set in to connect us to him. The, the hard part about it is just the investment into it. You have to try and reach out there and try to connect with those words and, and, and allow that song to mean something to you. So when you're singing it, it's not just like you're jamming out on the radio. You're singing about something personal. And that's why we take the time to pick the songs and, and, and coordinate them with the message so that it brings something to our hearts that we're able to express every week. So what I'm not saying as I kind of wrap up my little worship rant not everybody has to sing. It's about the connection. And so use that time. We kind of bring the lights down and we make it loud and we allow you to maybe be in your own little place for a little bit and find that moment of refuge and allow that to be a time where you try to build that relationship and connect to God through what the words are on the screen. That's worship. All right. So today, as we get into our lyric series, we are going to continue specifically with... Uh, a psalm from David. And I want to create a little background in it because we see so many instances in the Bible throughout psalms of, of poems and songs written to express feelings and emotions and relationships. And David in particular was one of those guys that loved to just talk to God about what was going on. And it wasn't always this great, happy, joyous kind of occasion where it's like skipping through the forest and God, you're so amazing and everything's so great and I have everything I've ever wanted and everything is perfect. Most of the time that we hear from David when he's going through the Psalms, he, he's crying out to God from this place of brokenness and hurt and confusion and, and lostness. And I think it's something for some reason in our culture we've decided to associate the Bible with just this, well, that's, if I can do all that, then everything's perfect. And so there's a disconnect because we go, well, my life isn't perfect, so maybe I can't relate to Scripture. That's what we want to bring out in Psalms is that it was, these things were written by people just like us, experiencing the same struggles that we're experiencing, going through the same difficulties. And David's not any different. As I want to give a little bit of background um, as we get into Psalm 4 today. In Psalm 3, we hear David crying out to God, asking for rescue from enemies who are slandering his name, who are attacking him, who are out to kill him. 
And, and the belief behind the connection of Psalm 3 actually goes back to 2 Samuel when one of David's sons, Absalom, is trying to run David out of the kingdom. He's, cre- he's, he's fostered this bitterness in his heart against his dad and he desires to run him out and take over and claim everything that is his. And so as we're reading these Psalms, you've got to think through the idea that David is currently on the run from his child who's trying to kill him. Parents ever feel that way? No. <laughs> At least you cannot have your kid like raise a mutiny to uh, get you out of the house. They may make you want to run to the desert every now and then, um, but they're not trying to kill you. I hope. Um, but that's exactly where David finds himself in this moment as his own family turns against him. But what we get to read is that, that David's deep relationship with God allowed him to be raw and transparent about what was going on in his life. For me, it kind of makes me think of like an Instagram filter. Any Insta users? Anybody? For some reason, we've developed this obsession with a whole range of like just making the picture look better to making the picture look crazy, and all of those things are more interesting to us than just the picture. And I find it actually really humorous when people will post pictures like their food or just a coffee cup, and then they put like 20 filters over it to make it look super, it's like a cup of coffee, guys, come on, that's, (laughs) it's not more exciting because you made it like a pastel color over the top of it. But we do that with our life, I think, a lot of the time. We have the reality of what's going on, but for everybody that's concerned on the outside, we're trying to put these things over it so that they see something that looks more appealing than what is actually there. And I know we all are there to an extent with each other, but where it really hurts us is when we start to do that with God. Where instead of connecting with him and being honest about what's really going on in our lives, we're putting these filters over the front of it to try to convince God, all-knowing, all-seeing God, that, that we're not really hurting like we are, and we're not really struggling like we are. And that causes a disconnect in that relationship, and then we wonder why when the relationship is disconnected and we go through hard times, that we don't feel like God is near to us. And we don't feel like God is answering us. And so that's where we're going to jump in on Psalm 4. Verse 1 says this. Answer me when I call, O God. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. That's a really important place for me to start as I think about tragedy in our lives and how we answer the question, God, where are you? And as we try to figure out when our life's upside down, how do we find some kind of stability and what do we hold on to? One of the most important things is right there in that verse for me to hold on to is, you have given me relief when I was in distress. That's in past tense. As he's getting ready to talk to God, he's already thinking back about the times that God's already been there for him. And I bet most of us, if you have been a believer for any amount of time, you've had some experience where you feel like maybe God has stepped in and intervened in your life and done something cool. And then we have also really short memories. And the next speed bump we come across, we're sitting there going, God, where are you in this? Why can't you help me? Where are you? You, you're, you this and you that. But it's important to remember and take that time in, in our worst seasons to think back about moments where God has been there. Because even that in itself is a chance of hope of knowing, well, God loved me then, and I was just as big of a mess then, if not more. God still loves me now, and he still wants to be there for me now. David's acknowledging that at the very beginning. 
Maybe you haven't experienced a God redemption moment. Maybe you haven't felt like you've been rescued from something from God. And that takes us kind of into this next part. Verse 2 says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? We are absolutely in a culture where it's becoming less and less acceptable to believe in God. And it's only going to get worse. But there's some intentionality to that, that it's going to make people really have to choose what it is they're going to allow to sustain their life. Regardless of what your past experiences are, time's going to come where you're either going to deny that God has a place in your life or accept it. And that's your decision to make. But the world is not going to make it easy on you. We believe wholeheartedly that Satan is out there trying to destroy that connection between you and God with everything that he's got. And he's not going to make it easy on you, and he's not going to make your life comfortable so that you can just go through and, and say whatever you want to say about your belief about God. You will be challenged. People will criticize you. And that's where David's standing is he's trying to do the right thing by God, but he's having all these people stand up and try to run him out of his city. If Satan can create an environment where you are ashamed to turn to God when you need him, he will trap you in a cycle of doubt and shame. And then there's the word Selah. Which we just kind of read through and some people try to pass it off as just like, well, it's just an instrumental break. It's like a pause. But when you start studying that word and you start breaking down the different Hebrew root words, uh, there's several different definitions that you can kind of bring together to give you an idea of what that word is trying to tell us in that moment. One is a literal to hang, to weight, to measure or weigh in the balances. To measure or weigh the things that are going on in that moment. Another is thought to be said to praise or to lift up. And I love the combination of those because what I believe that word is in there for very specifically is to cause you, one, to pause and weigh what that sentence is saying to you. Weigh what that previous comment means to you. And then to use that to lift up and to praise God. And so in that moment as I read that, I'm saying, uh, David, what a weird place to put that because you're just talking about how awful things are. And you want to pause and you want to reflect on how awful things are. <laughs> and then you want to praise God. How do you do that? Because I, that, I know that's where we go. Like, how do you find that place of praise when everything's falling apart? David continues on. Verse 3 says this, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. I think it's important to notice here, too, the, the thing I want to underline is that word godly. David calls the godly to himself. And it, there is a lot of weight to that word. And as believers, we're called to pursue a godly life. But I think we have a misconception about what that really means. I think what we feel that means is we have to be a perfect Christian. To be godly, we have to be perfect. All of our relationships in check, everything just right, everything perfect. And I don't think that's the point because David himself was considered a man after God's own heart, and David's life was a mess. But the godly part about David is David was in a constant pursuit to find the things in his life that he could give over to God in order to strengthen his relationship with him. 
David was in a constant pursuit in the midst of his tragedies to be sure that he was connecting with God and being raw and transparent about where he is, about his downfalls, about his victories, and to give those to God and let God use those things. Godly men and women are the ones that go, I don't have it all together, but I believe that God is the answer. And if that's as far as it gets, that's as far as it gets, but you're pursuing every day an intentionality to grow a little bit closer to God. The godliest men and women that I know in my life are the first ones to say, I'm the furthest from perfect. I'm the furthest from altogether. But I will sacrifice everything before I sacrifice my relationship with God. And that's a tough challenge. Like, I'm not trying to throw that out there as an easy softball pitch. That's a tough challenge. Because it's really easy for us to get caught up in all kinds of things that maybe aren't the godly things of our life. And we dedicate so much time and so much purpose and to, to trying to connect to these things that aren't God. And work is great, and, and, and family is amazing. But all of those things are going to fall short at some time if that relationship with God is not intentionally built on. Especially when you walk into tragedy. How many marriages have ended, not because the marriage was difficult, but because the situation they were in was difficult? How many friendships have been ruined because the things going on in their own individual lives kept them from being able to connect to one another? How many people have walked away from God because their life has become too difficult? It's not about having it all together. It's about chasing God. But, but that has to raise the question then as we're walking through the psalm discovering how we find God in the midst of tragedy. What does God give us then? If we're not guaranteed this happy, perfect life, if God's not expecting that of us, if we know that, that tragedy's on its way or we're in the midst of it, what does God have to offer then? That feeling and that emotion in that moment, and I wanted to let that rest for a second as you kind of reflect on that, frustrating to be in that place and feel like God isn't listening. It's frustrating to be in that place and feel like you don't have a light at the end of the tunnel, something you can you know that it's going to end soon. It's heartbreaking. It makes you angry. It makes you sad. That's okay. Verse 4 says this, be angry. <laughs> Permission. Done. But don't sin. That was a very complicated sentence for me for, for a long time, and I'm still there. For the longest time, I associated anger directly with sin. If I'm angry, then I'm, I'm probably sinning. But right here, it's even saying as, God, as David is in this conversation with God, God's kind of giving him that instruction of, listen, it's okay to be angry. I know you're going to be angry. God gets angry. Jesus flipped a table over. You think he was angry? Like, that's not like a happy, like, hey, guys. <laughs> he was furious. In those moments of tragedy, it's okay to be angry, but that second part of the sentence is so important. Be angry, but don't sin. Because you see, when, when we let anger go unresolved, and we let anger, we, we put the filter over it, and we don't connect with God on it, and we don't connect with the people around us, and we don't express it to our loved ones in a healthy way, 
we allow that to turn into this monster of bitterness and shame and guilt that begins to eat us from the inside out, something that's an normal emotion out of shame, we let turn into something that starts to destroy our life. The biggest instruction for me in the do not sin part is to not let that fester in a place that disrupts your relationship with God. It's okay to be angry. But follow David's instruction here and, and talk to God about that. Cry out to him. Let him hear you. Let him be gracious and hear your prayers. Anger in the midst of tragedy is normal, but we cannot let it drown us. Uh, I've had a couple different drowning instances in my life. One, I was very little. I was at a pool party, and I was the only young kid there that had to wear a floaty. That's not cool. And so I begged and pleaded with my parents, please let me take this jacket off. Please let me go over with the big kids. I'm like, Brandon, you can't swim. You, you will die. <laughs> you need to keep the floaty on and you need to stay right here. And I begged and I cried and I pleaded and I made promises. And, and finally my dad said, okay, listen. If you stay in the shallow end and you keep your hand on the rail, you can take your floaty off. I'm like, yeah, dad, you you got it. I promise. I'll stay right here. I just wanted to kind of fit in and be like the other kids in the deep end. And so we did it. And they went back to doing their thing. And I took one step away from the edge and kind of looked around and nobody noticed. And I took another step away. Before I know it, I'm standing on the edge of where the deep end slides down into. I'm kind of looking around. I'm kind of enjoying it. And I slip and fall. And I can't swim. I am drowning. And with every kind of kick I can get up to the top, I'm trying to yell help, but it's just a gargle. And thankfully, my dad's a great dad, and he's watching me and jumps in and pulls me back out. The second time (laughs) that I almost drowned, I was a lot older, and I was scuba diving. Uh, And I can't do anything halfway, and so I was like, if I'm going to scuba dive, I'm going to get it certified. Because it's certified, you can go a lot deeper than 35 feet. I'm like, if I'm going to get in the water, I'm going to go as deep as I can possibly go, uh, which I believe is 130 feet as a recreational diver. And so I had this opportunity to go super deep. And I went really deep, and I used up a whole lot of oxygen, and my tank stopped working, and I stopped breathing at about 65, 70 feet underwater. I don't know if you know that, but that's bad. (laughs) That's not a normal thing to happen. And so what do you do... When you're 65 feet underwater, under all the pressure, it's taken me 35 minutes to get down that low so that my body can deal with the pressure. And you can imagine my eyes are about this big. And they go through all the training of like, okay, but you can't stop breathing. Don't hold your breath because it'll affect your lungs. And don't do this and don't do this and don't panic. And I was able to find the instructor as I'm slowly breathing on oxygen, doing one of these and trying to swim at the same time. And I managed to connect with him just in time. He pulled out his extra thing. We, we, we connected again together, and we went up to the top. That's a scary moment. It's an overwhelming moment where I've gotten myself into a situation that I literally can do nothing about on my own. The similarity between both of those stories is, one, I was going in a direction that I was not really made to be in. Um, human beings are not really made to survive uh, underwater. Both times I was going away from the safety of other people that were there to help me especially instance as a child, I was going away from the person that could protect me. 
the people who are trying to do the right things for me, I was rebelling against because I wanted to go do something that seemed more exciting. And I feel we get in the same place, and that's how we start to drown in our emotions of, of grief and anger, sadness, of regret. Because as we experience those things, we start looking around and chasing all kinds of other things that we think is going to make life better, and then it doesn't. And then when we look up, we realize we've walked so far away from the people who are trying to protect us and love us and be there for us. And at that moment, you have a choice. Stay where you are and let that monster continue to consume you or turn around and go back to the people that love you and are trying to help you. That's my perfect image of what I can think of as God rescues me from, from the temptation to sin in these areas is that I have a God who loves me so much. It's like my dad. He, he wants me to enjoy life. He wants me to have good memories and good relationships, but he knows the things that are beyond me and he knows the things that are gonna get me in trouble and he knows that sometimes I'm going to choose to do it anyway. But God not rescuing me out of those moments and those dark pits that we all find ourselves in would be the same as my dad standing on the side of the pool going, well, it's nice to know you. You shouldn't have disobeyed me. Suffer the consequences. If my dad is good enough to jump in and save me out of me being stupid... Don't you think God is willing and and desiring to do the same thing for you? The hope that David's finding in this is, yes, I know all of this is bad, but God, I know that you can do this, and I know you want to do this because you love me so much. And I know that I've strayed, I know that I've walked away, and I know that I've made some decisions, but you always have the decision to turn around and walk back to God and go, hey, that was really stupid. I shouldn't have done that. Thank you for having grace for me and thank you for wanting me back and thank you for loving me and God welcomes you back in and you go on. For me, that's the picture of godliness. Not this, just this. Just the direction of walking back. Not being perfect. Just the ability to go, yeah, I'm not, I don't have this together. I'm messed up, but I'm gonna chase after God with everything that I've got because I believe that's where my hope is. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Say law again, pause, rest, lift him up in that. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Anger in the midst of tragedy is normal, but we cannot let it drown us. There are many men who say, verse 6, there are many men who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have with their, when their grain and wine abound. We're still getting this description of hope as David's going through this. He's saying, listen, all of these people try to cry out and point at my life and go, well, if God was as good as you say he is and if he loves you as much as you say he does, then why are you going through this? Believe me, I've asked that question plenty of times in life. If God is so good and God is so loving, then why do I have to walk through this? And David answers that response. His response to that claim is this. God, you have put more joy in my heart than when when their grain and wine abound. We are very quick to confuse happiness and comfort and safety with, with joy. They're not the same. God did not 
promise us a happy, safe, comfortable life. Most of the time, it's quite the opposite. God has been very clear that this is a tough life to live, and following him is not an easy journey. But what he's promised is when we're making this decision to chase back after him, to try to be welcomed back into his arms, that there's a joy that's being able to be found in being with him. Not being perfect for him, not doing anything, being, just being close and fostering that relationship brings about a joy in your heart that's irreplaceable. You can't find it anywhere else. And so we get to those moments where we're drowning and we're going, well, why can't I find any joy? Because you're not close to the source of the joy. You're not fulfilling the godly part of the Christian walk. You're pursuing yourself instead of pursuing God. There's no joy in you. There's joy in God. We can't forget that. I know that's a tough truth to swallow because we become so self-interested when we hit those hard times. But you don't need the happiness and comfort and security. You don't need that nearly as much as you need to be able to find the joy and peace that only God can provide because that's what sustains. A lot of people... uh, a lot of people know what I've been going through for the last year and the tough relationship things that have happened in my life. And I've had people ask just, Brandon, I just don't know how you do that. I don't know how you keep going through this and how you keep trying to do the right thing and you keep providing opportunities for forgiveness and, and you keep seeking to be this. That's a great question because I ask that question to myself all the time. The answer to why I can find what I need to find in this hardest, most terrible season of my life is because that's what I'm chasing. And that's all I have to offer. Like, all I can tell you is that pursuing the comfort and security and safety and normalcy that the world tries to tell you is right does not work. And I don't have a hundred scientific studies to prove every single facet of how the brain works in that opera, but what I can tell you is I've been there I've tried this, it did not work, I became more miserable and more depressed and more enclosed, but when I started doing this, things got better. Not my situation. My relationship wasn't restored. My career is forever kind of altered. My future will never look the same. I will carry those scars for the rest of my life, but I find some joy and peace just by trying to do this. And that's all I can offer, and that's what David's trying to offer. Is Listen, as I'm being attacked in the worst moments of my life, all that I know to tell you is that when I try to do this, I find something that I can't find over here. I love this last verse. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The safest places I'm able to find in the midst of tragedy are the places that are the closest to him. And they're not safe in my relationships. It doesn't make those more safe. It's not safe in my job or my work or the things I try to make myself busy with. That's not the safety. The safety is found in just being close to God. To drawing from that joy and drawing from that peace 
and I don't get to go to sleep at night and go, God, I know everything will be better tomorrow. Everything will be better tomorrow. Thank you, God. But I get to go to sleep and sleep with peace because I know in the morning God's still going to be in control and I'm still not. And that's the sweetest, most precious moment of my life because I mess things up real bad, real fast when I'm in control. The peace is not praying, God, just, just correct this job and correct this relationship and correct this mistake that I made. It's saying, God, I know that that happened, but I know that you can be in control and I know that I can find joy and peace in you. I'm going to pursue that. There's a lot of people out there right now that are trying to convince you that if you live the right way, say the right words, give the right amount of money, act just right, that all of life will just be better for you. Your job will be better, you'll make more money, you'll have more friends, you'll be more popular, you'll be more accepted. It's this thing that, that's developed called the prosperity gospel. The better Christian I am equals the exact better that my life will be. And if I'm not getting the job that I want and I'm not getting the money that I desire and I'm not having the relationships that I desire, then I'm just not being a very good Christian. Some of you have heard that, I'm sure. That's a lie. It is a bold-faced lie. And the people teaching that have not read scripture very well. Because I don't know how you read the laments of David, man after God's own heart, and go, yeah, if I just live the right way, then everything else will be fine and life will be great. There's one gospel message. It's not the prosperity gospel. The one gospel message in reality has nothing to do with anything that you can offer at all. It has nothing to do with how good of a person you are, how bad of a person you are. It has nothing to do with how many times you go to church or don't go to church. It has nothing to do with how loud you sing. Or, it has nothing to do with you. The one and only gospel has everything to do with Jesus and what he did because he loves you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the hardest part to find in these tragedies is we like to try to dig ourselves out of it and like to believe that there's something we can do and God's trying to say, listen, I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to come back to me. I don't need you to clean yourself up first. I love you just the way you are. I don't need you to fix the relationship first. I love you just the way you are. I don't need you to find that job. I don't need you to find other purpose. I love you just the way you are. I just want you to come back to me so I can give you some of that joy and that peace that I promised you. I want you to come back to me so I can fix the things that are really important, the things that are really broken inside. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. All right. So I want to wrap things up a little bit with this, and we're going to look at Psalm 34 in just a second. But I want to address again, and I feel this is the best way to end, I want to address the elephant in the room when we talk about these things and it's so easy for us to sit there and guys I've been there trust me recently where I'm able to sit in the chair and go yeah that's that's great Brandon that's cute but you don't know what I'm going through and you don't know how bad things are God's nowhere to be found in my life right now 
And I've prayed and I've cried out and there are no answers and it's still just as dark or darker than the day that I started. God's not here for me. Say what you want. He's not here for me. God does not always answer the way that we think he should, but he always answers. And I think a lot of times the issue is that we get some weird expectations about what we think closeness to God brings us. And we also live in this culture where if you text somebody and they don't text you back in like two minutes, there's something wrong or they're mad at you or, you know, you know what I mean? They're lost forever. And you reread it and you reread it and you obsess over it and then they text you and you're like, oh, okay. They're like, I was in the shower. And you're like, okay, I thought life was over. His ending. God doesn't work that way. God's not the magic genie that just grants everything you want when you want it. I wanted to take off my life jacket and go into the deep end to be like the cool kids. That's what I wanted. Desperately. You could not have convinced me that that wasn't the right thing for my life. And I'd have looked you in the face and did to my parents, but you don't know. You don't know me. You don't know what I want. I can do this. This is good for me. There's a couple reasons I feel sometimes that we feel like God isn't answering. I think one can be this, that we're just far from him. We are. We've made the decisions to not talk to him and to not connect with him and to not sacrifice things of our life over to him so that we can be in that relationship. We don't give him any time. We don't pray. We don't read. We create a disconnect from him. And then we get to that place of tragedy and can't understand why we don't hear him anymore. And I feel in the same way, the other reason God may not answer is he's answering just softly. We have lots of instances in the Bible where, where God whispers. And you imagine if anybody can be loud, it's probably God. But why does he speak softly? Because when someone speaks softly, you lean in a little bit. And it's not, that, it's not that God's not answering you. It's that you've walked so far away. He's trying to tell you what it is that you need. But he's saying it softly, not to confuse you, not to trick you, not to deceive you, but to, drink, to, to pull you back in close. He's whispering to create that worship moment of, of intimacy where you walk back towards him again and you begin to hear him again and it begins to build that joy because you realize in him there's some hope. In him there's some peace to be found and I may not have it today, but I know that it's there. Psalm 34 says this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look at him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him 
and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in God. Why aren't we finding the blessings in the tragedy? Because the blessings aren't in what we have to offer. The blessings are in what God has to offer. God, why won't you bless me in what I'm going through? He says, I'm trying, but you got to come back. I'm trying to give you those things, but you need to draw near to me again. Verse 15 says this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he hears, and his ears are turned toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Listen to this. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Marie, that one more time. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. What is our righteousness? Because I think it's easy to read that and, and the response to be Brandon, but I'm not righteous. I'm a mess. I know, me too. Righteousness has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with how perfect Jesus is and how much he loves you. Your righteousness is in God. Your righteousness is in how perfect Jesus is. He makes up for all the mess. We are righteous and God listens to us because he loves us. If there's anything that's heard out of all this and anything about the times of tragedies, I want you guys to hear this, that God is near. It may not feel like it, but maybe that's because we're not really looking for them. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Maybe we're looking for the wrong kinds of things. Maybe we need to change our standards a little bit. We've fallen in this idea that if we don't have this perfect American life, then we're maybe a little less than. And God's saying, I don't care about that. I have a peace and a joy and a hope to offer you that you may have never experienced before simply because you're not pursuing it. I'm not hiding it from you. I'm not trying to keep it from you. I'm not trying to hold it above your head and tease you with it. It's to correct the behavior. He's reminding you that it's not found over here. So stop being so frustrated and beating your head on the wall, trying to make the same thing happen again and again and again. The definition of insanity, repeating something that doesn't work and expecting different results. That's my challenge. That's all I really have to offer is, listen, I know what worked for me. And you don't have to believe me. You don't have to. But I wouldn't stand up here if I didn't have that. 
my challenge is try it. Try it. Legitimately let your heart go there and go, okay, I'm going to let go of some of this. I'm going to let go of some of the security and the comfort and the safety. I'm going to do my best to take some little steps over in this direction and maybe just see if God is who he says he is. And that I can promise you. God delivers the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And in God, peace and joy can be found. But we have to give up a lot of things to get there. You have to decide what's the most valuable to you. I know what I've sacrificed and I know what I've let go of and I know the things that I've struggled with and I wouldn't pick a single one of them back up in place of what it is that God's done in my life through this tragedy. That's all I have. That's all the words asking from you. Try. Let's pray. God, I am such a mess. And I'm trying to teach these things and I know that I still struggle with this every day. God, it's so easy for me to try to put the weight on my own shoulders and believe that I am capable of creating the life for myself that I feel that I need. But God, my greatest moments in life have come from moments where I let go of my expectations and allow you to define the things that I need in my life. And Lord, I find those things that I need when I pray with you. When I spend time with you and when I read your word, you replace my selfish desires with the things that you know that I need. And God, when I pursue those things, I find peace and I find joy and I find love. And I find those things in the middle of the seasons that should seem like they are without love and peace and hope and joy. God, it's not a lack of goodness out of you. It's mainly a lack of faith out of us of letting you take control. We have to weigh the cost of what it is that means to be in a relationship with you. This isn't a country club. This is a place for all kinds of broken and messy people from all kinds of backgrounds to find you, to learn about you, and God prayerfully lay those selfish things down in front of you and let you pick those up off of our shoulders and let you give us a better life, not by our own definition, God, but by yours. God, put, us, put, put in us a desire to be godly. Put in us a desire to take those steps towards you as hard as it is. And Lord, thank you that when we mess that up, God, when we go into the deep end, you're not there to shame us or judge us or ridicule us. God, you're waiting for us to cry out to help to you so that you can rescue us. Life will never be easy, but it is so much better with you, Lord. God, I love you and I give you all of these things. It's in your name.